Good morning. It's so good to be here, especially to know I still have a job after what I said last week. Um, so for all of you, thank you for those of you who texted, tweeted, messaged me, told jokes, or misquoted me on social media. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dangerous things happen when Mason goes off his notes and just... <laughs> Uh, would you just join me in a word of prayer this morning? Father, thank you for allowing us to be in this space. We recognize that this week, Father, man, we, we chased it after the wrong things. We, we lied, we cheated, we, we acted with jealousy. But not just that, but we also faced just the, the weight of a broken world where those same things were done to us in return, Father. And so we don't come in here pretending to be perfect. We come in here expressing that we have a great need for you. And so, Father, I'm asking, would your Holy Spirit move in this room right now to draw our attention and our hearts towards something sacred and bigger than us? Help us to see your heart your tremendous amount of, of compassion and love for us as we look into your word right now. Especially as we talk about a topic that I know weighs heavily on many parts today. And I would ask selfishly for myself that you would speak through me so whatever you want to say might be all for your glory and your attention. And that we might walk out of here today with a greater love for you. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. So I know up on stage I've told a number of crazy shenanigans stories of every time I try to travel outside of Poplar Bluff, especially if I fly. I know I've told a, a number of those stories, and you probably think Mason is the most unlucky person when he travels outside of Poplar Bluff. He just needs to stay here in town. And, and there's one story I haven't told you happened uh, rather recently this summer. I took a trip to Virginia, and, and these crazy shenanigans happened that I am still suffering the effects of today. Here's what happened. So it was the Father's Day weekend, um, and I was arriving back in town around 1 a.m. Saturday morning. I had been gone all week in Virginia uh, for other reasons. And I hadn't seen Jody in Harper for a week, so they decided Friday night, hey, let's travel to St. Louis. Let's book a, a hotel room. That way Saturday morning when I land in at 1 a.m., I'll just crash there, and then, then we'll have the day in St. Louis. We'll go to the zoo and other fun things and, and celebrate Father's Day, celebrate re really, well, me being a father, which, not to brag, makes me the second coolest adult in our little family, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we were so excited for this, and we land, and we, you know, took the tram to our hotel, and we woke up the next morning ready for an adventure, and that's when we kind of discovered that apparently on one of the flights, my car keys fell out of my pockets, and they were lost on a plane, but don't worry, they're somewhere in the United States, I know that much. Um, and so we're still suffering the effects of this. So we're like, well, this is a bummer, because now we have a car in the airport parking lot that's stranded, and and thankfully, we've got insurance and warranty for just an occasion. So we call them up, and they're like, yeah, we can get you a new key and, and handle that and get you home in six weeks. 
And obviously, we did not do this, okay? Uh, I couldn't even imagine the aspect of leaving a car in an airport parking lot $10 a day for six weeks. I don't even want to do the math to figure out what that would cost, right? So obviously, we needed to come up with another solution. And we have a spare car key for just such an occasion in Poplar Bluff. Yeah, we were in St. Louis, all right? So we, we needed to find a solution because we couldn't leave my car there and it was Father's Day weekend, and we knew a lot of people were busy and out of town and doing all sorts of stuff, but, but we called Andy and Anna Luke, and Anna Luke was free and was willing to break into our house, go to our safe, find our key, and then meet us about halfway to St. Louis, and, and we were very appreciative of this. We had lunch with her, we had a great time, and then Jody and I and Harper afterwards went to the zoo and had a great time, and we were so grateful to have a friend like that. The funny story is that our neighbor thought Anna was a stranger actually breaking into her house. So apparently Anna gives off that kind of vibe. You know, some sort of, <laughs> just joking. I'm sure she's in here in the room somewhere. But anyways, I bring this up to say something that we all know is wonderful and true. That it's great to have people that you can trust, that you can call upon in a time of need, who you know are going to be there for you or help you out. We all have that, and we all love that, but we also know we don't trust everyone equally. Like Jody and I, we didn't post on Facebook saying, guys, we're locked out of our house. Here's how you break in. Can someone please come and help us, right? Because you don't trust everyone the exact same way, right? We, we come to a point where there's certain people you just trust a little bit more with different things because they've proven themselves trustworthy in the past, right? Which is why it is therefore so very painful when someone you trusted has taken advantage of that trust, when they've abused it. And this is what's difficult, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, we've all experienced this. Where there was someone you trusted and, and they took advantage of that trust and something was done. And I'm sure it played out like this, especially if you're a Jesus follower. This is probably a story you've experienced, right? Someone did something that they knew was wrong, that you knew was wrong. You confronted them about it, and then they apologized. They repented. They said they were sorry. They said they would never do it again. And maybe in some circumstances that actually happened. Maybe that was great, and they never did the thing again. And you forgave them. But then sometimes, for some individuals, they went back on their word. And they went and did it again, and again, and again, and again. And you kept forgiving them over and over and over, but eventually it became blurry of where is your forgiveness being abused? When are you enabling the sin of someone else? See, this is true whether you're a Jesus follower or not. We've all struggled with this. This is a universal thing, and we need to ask ourselves a question of how do we respond? when it feels like our forgiveness is being taken advantage of? How do we respond to these things? Now, I'll be honest, I don't know if I have an actual answer for that this morning, because every circumstance is unique and different. But my heart this morning is, is when we turn into Hosea right now, my heart is that you would see that you are not alone and that you are loved in that difficult space and pain. Because you're going to see a hope in Scripture as we look in Hosea chapter 6 this morning. A God who is wrestling with the same thing. Where his trust has been taken advantage of. His forgiveness is just abuse. He's wrestling with that space of 
when does this forgiveness become enabling? And that's my heart, that this morning you would see that you are just not alone in this. We come to Hosea chapter 6, and to give you a little context, last week we talked about in Hosea chapter 5 that redemption requires us not to ignore problems, but to confront them, to be honest, saying this is wrong and this hurts and this is killing the relationship. And when God finally has that point with his people, and he speaks to them and he says, hey, this is wrong. There needs to be a change in place. Here's how they respond. And this might seem a little bit familiar to us, maybe personal to some of our circumstances. But he says, here's what they say in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. They say, come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. They're saying, man, we, we've messed up, God. We need to be fixed. We, we're so sorry. We'll never do it again. And the problem is, is they've given this speech before. Over and over again, you, you look at this in their history. You just read the whole book of Judges. That's all it is about, where they mess up and they apologize. And they're like, sorry, God, I don't know what happened there. I mean, I, I know we've made this mistake a thousand times, but we won't do it one more time if you'll just forgive us. And God does. And then they go right back into it. That's the whole book of Judges. That's the whole history of Israel. And God is looking at his people right now. He's like, guys, we've had this conversation. We've been on this hamster wheel over and over and over. You do something wrong and I forgive you, but nothing's changing. And you get this vibe when he responds to their apology by saying this in verse 4. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? He's at a point where he's like, guys, clearly nothing's changing here. I, I can't keep buying this false repentance, this false apology if it's not real. And he even describes them in verse 4 going on. He says, this is what you're like. He says, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Meaning, there's a point where you're like, man, I, I love this God. And, and I'm, going, I'm on fire for him. And look, he, he forgave me and it's awesome. But then Monday morning comes along, right? The feelings and emotions of Sunday morning, they're gone by Monday morning. That's what he's talking about. He's like, your love is so fickle. It runs out so quickly. You apologize. You say you'll never do this again, but, but you don't really mean it. Maybe some of us have been in those same shoes and same experiences. We're like, you know, I keep forgiving this person, keep forgiving this, but I think I've got to a point where they're just, you know, I'm just enabling them because they're not really interested in this relationship. And God brings it up in verse 6. And what he says in verse 6, let me tell you, it is really terrifying, especially if you're like, man, I grew up in church. Or especially if you're like, man, I serve in all these different areas in church. And if that's you, then these next words should be really terrifying because they terrify me. Here's what God says. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, they got into this mode of, of a transactional relationship that was just on autopilot, thinking, if I do this over here, then God is obligated to give me this over here. It's what's called nominalism, where there's no real intimate, loving covenant anymore. It's all about transactions. 
It's all about, man, God should give me this over here because I did this over here, and he should ignore all this mess over here because that's not God's territory because I did this thing over here. I threw a few bucks in the offering plate. I serve in all these different ministries. I preach on Sunday morning. Therefore, God should ignore the rest. This is nominalism. It's not a real relationship. And we do this in all sorts of things, not just in our relationship with God. You see this in a marriage. When a marriage and the two couples, they're just, hey, if I do these things, then therefore my marriage is good. Right? I, I, I brought home the paycheck, the kids are fed, and they're clothed, and, and I at least asked my spouse how their day was, and therefore I'm a lucky catch. Right? And they should give me what I want. Like, if you do that in a marriage, then your marriage is no longer a loving, covenant, intimate relationship. No, it becomes nominal. Nominalism has set in. Where it's all about, I did this because I wanted that over there. That was my only motivation. I just wanted this from you. Nominalism kills marriages. It kills parenting. It kills careers, and it certainly kills our relationship with the holy and righteous God. A God who, as we just sung and as we just heard read, wants the depths of our heart more than all the things we try to do for him. It's great that we do things for him, but if we're not opening the depths of our heart to him, everything we do for him is meaningless because we weren't really doing it for him. We were doing it for sex, money, and power, just like everyone else doing everything else. Where here's this guy who says, man, I want the depths of your heart. But his people were like, no, we're good, right? But man, we're, we're good people. We're the people of God because we did these things over here, and therefore God should give us what we want. But they, they really weren't interested in the heart of this God. And here's what God says is the signs of their nominalism. Here's what it looks like. And let's ask ourselves, maybe there's some areas that might very well apply to our own hearts. Where he points out three very quick examples. Verse 7, he says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. You know the Adam and Eve story and the whole problem? Adam thought he knew better. Adam thought his way was better than God's way. And he wanted his Things. He wanted what he wants. His opinion was the only right one. His way was the only right one. So this is what nominalism does. It gets us to think, I'm owed something. And I'm right. And everyone else is wrong. If you ever had a complaint about a coworker or a spouse, and always like, look what they're doing. They're doing the wrong thing. It might be a little bit of Adam showing itself right there. He says, this is what's happening in your hearts. And it goes on from there. He says in verse 8, he says, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. Gilead, when it was first formed, was to be a city of peace and reform. And he's like, this place that was supposed to be a peace and reform, look, it's all chaos. It's evil now. Which basically says, this is what nominalism does. It gets us to first think, man, that we're superior, that we're the ones always right, that everyone else has the problem. And then it causes us to start to destroy places of peace around us. Destroys relationships around us. And then he points out another example, verse 9. It says, as robbers lie and wait for a man, so the, the priests, so the priests band together and they murder. Get that, that's the priests. 
They murder on the way to Shechem, which is a place of worship to God. They murder on the way there, and they commit villainy. Basically pointing out, you're not being who you're meant to be. You're not being the people who are going to be a kingdom of priests of this world, who are going to help work with God, be partners with God, and bring in God's glory. No, rather instead, you're part of the problem. And so this is what he, God is saying real quick, boom, 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 three examples. He's like, first off, you start to think in this nominalism mindset that you're right and everyone else is wrong, and you don't even realize how you're hurting relationships around you, and you don't even realize how you have failed in your purpose. Which all of these examples come up because they're trying to teach us something. That, that wrong ideas about God lead to wrong behavior in our lives. This is where God's saying this relationship is so very broken. I, I saw this quote this week on social media. I thought it was perfect. It was by another pastor. And he said, if you change your behavior but don't change your heart, the behavior will come back. That was the issue. See, from the Israelites' perspective, they thought, man, we're good with God because we do all these things on the outside for God, but their heart was broken and corrupt. And God's pointing out these three quick examples to show them how their heart was broken. And that's something that, that should be challenging to us to ask, man, are these very three things a part of my life too? Am I hurting the people around me? Am I the one who always thinks I'm right and everyone else is wrong? Am I failing in being who God has called me to be and others are suffering from it? Right? This is the challenge where God says, man, if you just gave me your heart, man, that'd be great. But rather instead, we try to cover it up with the exterior, making the exterior look better. Never addressing the interior problem that's in place. Right? And God points this out. He points it out again in verse 1 of chapter 7 when he says, When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed in the, the evil deeds of Samaria. He's basically saying, hey, I, I gave you grace and mercy. I gave you good things. And then you responded with evil. You responded with going off and doing your own things. And this is like us sometimes when, you know, on a Sunday morning, we're very repentant. We're very like, God, I am so sorry. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. I know I messed up. I don't want to do this anymore. And then when God, you feel like God has given you forgiveness and grace and mercy, and you're like, that's great. But then Monday morning comes along. And you're right back at it because you're given the grace and mercy and forgiveness that you want on Sunday morning. And you used it as permission, therefore, to go and continue doing the same thing. I once heard a story from a pastor who, who confessed about having an affair. And, and he talked about he was in this affair for years and years. And, and when he was finally called out on, they're like, hey, how could you be in this affair for so long? What was the deal here? And he said what happened was uh, on Friday morning, he, he was just torn up about it. He was all repentant. But then Sunday, he would have a great worship Sunday. And he was thinking on Sunday afternoon, oh, this is good. You know, God has forgiven me. This is great. And so I'm going to go right back to my affair. How often are we the exact same way? Where we get something we want from God and we're like, yeah, this is great. Now I'm going to go and do my own thing, God. Thank you for giving me what I wanted. And how often do we do that in our relationships? And here's what God says. Verse 2, it says, But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. For a holy and all-knowing God to remember means that he holds us accountable. That our sins aren't just, hey, you know, yeah, no big deal. But they cost something. They cost his son dying on a cross for us. 
This is not a God who is like, yeah, I'm fine with whatever problems. I'm fine with other unhealthy thing you're doing. This is not a God who is fine with having a broken relationship with us, but one who wants something deep and intimate with us and fights for that. But these people, man, they, they didn't care. And God tells them in verse 10, he says, Yet they do not return to Yahweh their God, nor seek him for all this. And we've seen plenty in this series how these people thought they were the people of God, but they really weren't. How they claimed to be doing good things for God, but God was not part of it, and God was not interested in it. We see the differences where they say one thing, but God's like, whoa, that's not the actual reality that's going on here. And we can do the same thing in any of our relationships where we can put up all sorts of evidence to say, man, I'm, I'm good as a parent. I'm good as a, a spouse. I'm good as a worker. And here's the reason why. And totally ignore all the evidence that says, oh, but there's something broken here. And there's something not right. And you've forgiven over it. You've been forgiven over and over and over. But when does it cross over into de- to enabling it? And that's where the people were at in this story. So God finally tells him, verse 12, and this is scary. He says, I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. God had set healthy boundaries with them. He's like, this relationship, I wanted to be healthy and I wanted to be flourished, so therefore we're going to have some boundaries. But if you cross this boundary, then you're going to have to face some consequences for your actions. And that, that's challenging because healthy boundaries only exist if they are kept, Right? If someone disobeys a healthy boundary but you, that you establish and you don't enforce it, then therefore it was not a healthy boundary. It was not a real thing. And here's where God's saying, man, I have set some healthy boundaries in place so that this relationship would flourish, so it would be good, so it would be great. And you cross the line. And I've forgiven you. I've shown you mercy time and time again. But there's a point where we just have to stop and say, okay, you've got to face some consequences. Got to learn some hard truths because sometimes the most merciful thing God can do is let us hit rock bottom so he can build us back up the right way. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, man, you've been warned about this. You knew this was coming and therefore I still love you. You're still my people. But you're going to have to face some hard times. You have to learn some hard truths. And this is not something that God wanted for his people. He even tells them, verse 13, he says, I would redeem them. Meaning he's like, I, I loved you. I just wanted this beautiful relationship with you. But you kept abusing the, the trust. You took the forgiveness for granted. You used it for whatever you wanted to use it for. And he describes it like this in verse 13. He says, but they speak lies against me, and they do not cry to me from the heart. And so if you hear God says, this is enough. Because in reality, they didn't really want him. Here's what they're upset about. Verse 14. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. See, they're not really upset about losing the relationship. They're upset about losing the meal ticket. And I know that's difficult to hear. Because some of you have felt the same way where when you have finally set a healthy boundary and you said no, the other person got upset because what they wanted was not you and the beauty of the relationship 
what they wanted is what they could get out of it. And that's where the relationship was broken with God and his people. Because they didn't really want him. They wanted the sex, money, and power, all the things that they, they wanted and they were looking for in other places. And here's this God who was just dragged along and abused. And so the lesson from Hosea chapter 6 and 7 is not easy. It's not pleasant to, to preach. It's not pleasant to apply, but it's necessary for healthy boundaries and growth in our lives. It's that we need to see that forgiving someone does not give them permission to take further advantage of us. Forgiving someone does not give them permission to take further advantage of us. And sometimes that means the most loving thing you can do is to say no and to put healthy boundaries in place. Not everyone applauds that. Not everyone's going to be clapping your hands when you have to set up healthy boundaries in a marriage and with your parenting and with your friends and stuff like that, saying this is what is acceptable and this is what I know will create a healthy relationship and this is a line that cannot be crossed. People don't applaud that. In fact, people will say, aren't you from that place that says you're all about loving God and loving people? Didn't Jesus say you should forgive? You know, I've heard those same challenges. And here's what I've come to realize when you actually study the Bible. And you read letters like Romans and Galatians. It's that God has given us forgiveness. He has forgiven our sins, our past, present, and future. And it's awesome. Everything is clean. From here on out, we are remade into our, the children of God that God wanted us to be. But God doesn't give us forgiveness so that we can go and go right back to our sin. God gives us forgiveness so that we might be liberated from our sin and live and walk as the people we were meant to be. Galatians talks about, he's like, we've been given freedom. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to go back into sin, but to walk in the way that God has called you to walk. Walk in the freedom and the liberty that forgiveness offers. See, that's what the forgiveness of Jesus does. And he is not a God who is all right with enabling our sin. He's not a God who's all right with being abused and mistreated. And therefore, we need to learn, man, are we that? Or is it possible maybe we've even done that in relationships in our lives? Which all comes to the point, man, are we actually honoring this God? I read this quote from a book, and it said this. It says, we must honor what honors and in doing so, we must not confuse the good commands to love and forgive with the bad realities of enabling and covering up things that are not honoring to God. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to set healthy boundaries. And it's not forgiveness if we're burying a sin. It's not forgiveness when we're covering up a wrongdoing. At that point, we're just enabling. And this is difficult. And I'm not preaching from someone who has this mastered because, to be honest, I have relationships in my own life that I sometimes wonder, man, am I forgiving or am I enabling? And I can't talk about them because I've got a camera on me and a microphone and everything I say is being uploaded to the Internet, but I understand this pain. 
Because there's people in my life, and I'm sure it's the same in your life, where you can't be in the same room with them. It might be former friends, it might be coworkers, it might even be family gatherings that you can't go to. You can't be with certain family anymore because boundaries were crossed. Trust was broken. And while you forgive them, doesn't mean that you can step in and allow them to, to abuse that forgiveness anymore. And so I don't say this as someone who has this mastered. I say this as someone who, who understands this pain, and I want you to see a holy and righteous God who understands that pain as well. But I also want you to think about something else, because this is what I think about when I read Hosea chapter 6 and 7. I read this, and I see myself in it. Because I've been the person who has abused God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. I have been the person who has given false repentance, saying, God, I'm sorry, when I didn't really mean it. I have been the person who has crossed boundaries with God. And you know, I've done it in relationships as well. We all have. And I say that so that you might be comfortable enough and maybe humble enough to recognize maybe there's been areas in your life where you've been less than perfect as well. And here's what I find that helps me then. When I come to those places where I'm like, man, am I, am I forgiving this person or am I enabling them to abuse me, to take advantage of me in any way? What I find is helpful and needed is having wise Jesus followers around me that I can lean upon, who can look into the situation in an unbiased way and speak life and encouragement into that space which is why it's so important of what we do. Why we stress all the time, don't just come into church and slip out without actually meeting anybody, without greeting anybody. That's why we oftentimes say, hey, take someone out to lunch or, or you know, come to a small group or to one of our family dinners or something because it's crucial that you have these kinds of relationships in your life because we all come to these moments where it feels like, man, I'm on a rocky shore. Am I forgiving or am I enabling and having brothers and sisters in the faith around you. Man, that's so crucial right now. People who can remind you of a gracious and merciful God who took a cross for you, who allowed his body to be broken for you, his blood to be poured out for you, and to celebrate, man, there is now liberty in Christ. There is now freedom from sin. There is the capability to be who God has always wanted you to be now because of what Jesus has done. Which is why this morning we're once again doing communion. And when we take part in this right now, here's what the thoughts I want you to be thinking on your head. Man, there's a holy and righteous God who took your place on a cross, who allowed himself to be broken because this is what it took for our redemption. And this is how much God wants to forgive us and how intimate a relationship he wants with us that he was willing for his blood to be spilled for us. And as you take it, and you feel that bread and juice go down your throat. I want you to ask, man, who are you going to be tomorrow morning? Who are you going to be Tuesday and Wednesday? Are you going to walk in the liberty that Christ offers? Or are you just going to go back to the same old patterns? There's nothing going to change internally. Won't you pray with me? Jesus, this is not an easy topic. 
And it's not the same for everybody. Because that line looks different in every circumstances and every situation. But I can speak on my own relationship with you and recognize, Father, that there have been times where, times, it's like every day, Father, of every moment, where I abuse your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Man. I want to say sorry, but I know sometimes my sorries just feel like false repentance. But I do ask that you would, you would forgive us, Father. Because I think in this day and age, man, we are needing redemption. We need a, a new pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us, Father. And we need to walk out of here with true repentance in our hearts, a true life change in our hearts that would affect everything, that would affect our marriages, our parenting, our jobs, our friendships. Father, I'd ask, would you let it start with me? Father, we don't want to abuse your forgiveness anymore. So as we take of this and we remember the price of our forgiveness, that it called for your son to die a bloody death on a cross, would we walk away changed by it? Would it settle into our souls? so that we might walk out of here and say, oh man, how good is our God? And that is still in our lips on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and it just grows and grows because you've done something in our hearts today. So we've seen your heart. We ask would it in turn what we've seen change our own hearts. Would you give us redemption now? In your name, I pray.